it's a pleasure to be able to share uh, at this Christmas season, a very different Christmas season. And it's also a little bit nervous today because uh, with all the technology, I never have done this before. It feels like I'm broadcasting. <laughs> but in a way, I guess that every believer in Jesus should be a broadcaster. So. And I also want to thank everybody who prayed for me uh, to help me uh, share this morning, May the Spirit Move. Uh, the message today, uh, the title is called Shaft of Delicious Light. And I, I borrowed this phrase from the uh, C.S. Lewis book, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, there's a scene in there where the winter starting starting to fall, and the, the white mist was starting to turn to gold when the shaft of sunlight bursting through the winter. Yes, December is cold and, and it's wet, and uh, I go jogging, and not usually at night, but one time I was jogging after dark in the evening, and the light is, well, I was relying on a lot of the street lights, the distant street lights, a little glow in the, uh, in the houses, windows, and uh, the ran random uh, headlights, and I was able to find my way around my jogging route. But when I got into the, uh, a park and a trail around Como Lake there, uh, there's a segment of the trail which is completely covered with these trees and shrubs, uh, really tall trees, and even the moonlight could not get through, and I found myself in, in total darkness. And I, I couldn't see where I was going. I had to stop, fumble, and feel my way around. Um, I can truly felt the darkness in that moment until I was able to get out. So I wonder, in, in, our, in our walk of life, do we also rely on some dim glow to help us to find our way through? Or do we end up running into total darkness and, and be stuck like I was on the trail? So today I want to talk about the power of the light and darkness. I was chatting with Michael Yee, uh, actually a few years back, and we were talking about just the difficulty of under, understanding the scriptures. And we cited the, the opening verses in the book of John. And here's the, the verse in the opening ver uh, chapter. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God from the beginning. All things came to be through him, and without him nothing had been made. In him was life, and life was the light to mankind. The light shines in darkness, and darkness has not suppressed it. These are powerful verses. Uh, it defines who Jesus is. It actually also defines who we are and what we do. It's written in poetry. It's really it's, it's an opening, like a table of content for the rest of the book of John. Of course, the word here refers to Jesus. He is the word. And because of all the poetic and metaphors and um, symbols in there, it's a little hard for me to understand because I, I'm an engineer. I, I, I follow basic facts and logic. I'm not very good at poetry. But these first five verses really challenge me. In verse 1 to verse 3, it talks about Jesus as a word. Often we think of God, the Father, as the God of the Old Testament. He's the one that gave the law to Moses. He's the guy that 
guided, they directed the prophets and spoke to the, through the prophets. And then Jesus came to the scene 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. And he's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He died on the cross and risen in three days. So he's the Messiah of the New Testament, and which is true. But you see here in this opening verse, it says that beginning was the word. The word was God, and the word was God. The parallel is here is that Jesus with God in the beginning. He's the Alpha. God created the heavens and earth through Jesus. He was there at the burning bush with Moses. Later, he spoke with Moses and a 70 elder on a mountain. He guided David and spoke through the prophets. And when Jesus was transfigured in Matthew 17, bursting in light, it wasn't the first time he chatted with Moses and Elijah. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And verse 4 and 5, in him was life and light, and the light was the light to mankind. The light shined in darkness, and the darkness has not suppressed it. What is the light? Like today, light comes pretty easy with a flick of a switch. I walked through the, um, the lighting department in Ikea and just amazed at how many different ways we can light up our homes. And our sport fields and have light that shines on the field, and you can play soccer at 9, 10 o'clock at night. You can play tennis and pickleball if you don't mind the cold. We can even light up the whole desert in Las Vegas. So light doesn't take much effort. Uh, we don't think about it much. It's like breathing air. But if you look at, in Jesus' time, in the Algerian culture of the, that day, people use candles. Uh, they use torches, fire pits. But to have light, it takes effort to prepare it, to maintain it. And most people at that time would probably go to sleep after sunset. But if there's a light shining in the darkness, it will definitely draw your attention. Light stands out most in darkness. So in John 8, and Jesus was teaching during their festival or tabernacle, which is usually in September and October. He was likely in the court of women outside the holies of holies uh, in the temple teaching there when the Pharisee dragged in the woman who was caught in adultery. And most of you know the story. Jesus said, if any one of you is without sin, let him cast the first stone. So one by one, his accusers start to walk away. And then Jesus said to the woman, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Right after that, Jesus proclaimed this verse here on John 8 12. It says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have light which gives life. I am the light of the world. Jesus was proclaiming this right after he had forgiven that woman who was caught in adultery. Do you know today is the third day of Hanukkah? So I have this 
grab my little object. <laughs> Apologize. This is the menorah. I bought this. Well, actually, I bought this from uh, George here at church. Uh, today is the third day of Hanukkah. I'll put this here for now. I was with, I was with Ruth yesterday downtown, uh, and they were lighting up this giant menorah in front of the art gallery, right beside the giant Christmas tree that they lit up. So it was, it was a beautiful sight. They were lighting up the three candles on, on a giant menorah. But do you know the, the origin of, the, of Hanukkah? It is the period between the Old and the New Testament, about two, three hundred years before the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. During that time, the Jewish people was again under foreign occupation. They were dominated by the wicked Syrian king, Antiochus Epiphany, and his Seleucid Empire. Antiochus was Hellenistic, and he descended through the um, breakup of the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great. He forced the Jews to abandon their culture, abandon their religion, and impose a pagan rule over Israel. He erected idols in the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, he put an idol of Zeus uh, right in the, uh, the temple. Distinguished the flames on the temple's menorah, the, the big one inside the temple. And also he sacrificed a pig on the altar. The people of Israel was horrified, but they couldn't do anything about it. Then, a small band of rebels, led by a guy named Judas, and they call him and his group the Maccabees. It's a really cool nickname. It actually means the hammer. So what they did was unbelievable. Over a three-year struggle, this band of rebels, warriors, were able to drive out the Syrians and the pagan culture. And once they took back Jerusalem in 165 BC, the temple has to be cleansed and rededicated for worship. So this is according to tradition that they had to relight the temple menorah and they only have enough oil for one day. And it will take them seven days to get enough of the consecrated olive oil for the candle to burn. So the miracle happened that the candle which was supposed to only be able to burn for one day, continued to burn for up to the seventh day when they were able to bring back uh, the additional supply of consecrated oil. The rededication of the temple allows the Jews to again worship and celebrate the feast that was given to them by Mo, uh, through Moses, which was not possible during the Syrian rule. During the rededication ceremony, in December, they would have also tied back the Feast of the Tabernacle celebration, which was usually in September, October, which they could not celebrate under the Syrian occupation. So they would have weaved in the celebration of lighting the menorah, showing the light of God over the power of Zeus. Bright light is always associated with the celebration of Hanukkah as well as the Feast of the Tabernacle. So what is the relationship between Hanukkah and Jesus? It says in the book of John 10, 
verse 20 to 30. It's, Hanukkah is only mentioned once in the Bible. It's an, actually, it's in the New Testament. And it says on John 10, Then came the festival of dedication, which is Hanukkah, at Jerusalem in the winter. And Jesus was in the temple court walking in Solomon Colonnade. The Jews were gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. Remember in John 8, I am the light. And then he went on to give a sermon and then closes with saying, I and the Father are one. So during Hanukkah, at Jesus' time, the temple would look like this. Here's the artist's depiction of what the second temple looks like built under Herod. And during that time, the, the Feast of the Tabernacle, which they celebrate, would be known for a very marvelous illumination of light. From the second night to the last night, four massive candelabra, and you can probably see it on this diagram, they're about 75, 80 feet tall. They're located in the court of women's, and that's when they would light that up. And when these are light up, every courtyard in the city of Old Jerusalem would be lit up, and they can see the light shining from, this, uh, from the temple. So if we were there, Jesus was said in the court of women that I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have light that gives life. So if we heard that, we were there 2,000 years ago, watching Jesus forgive the woman who was caught in adultery, we would immediately associate with those tall lamps standing in the courtyard there, shining brightly, showing that he is the light of the world, a victory, not only over pagan oppression, but a spiritual victory, Amen. keeping us from the darkness. The second item I want to talk about is our identity, our identity crisis. Sorry. The question is, who am I? That is a very profound question. How will I answer that question? I say, well, I'm a Canadian. I'm ethnic Chinese. Uh, I'm an engineer by trade. I'm a husband, a father. Hopefully one day a grandfather if my children are watching. <laughs> and I'm a, a map in five stones here. Sometimes the culture might help define us negatively. They may say, oh, you're too slow. You have a speech impediment, which I do. <laughs> too skinny, too fat, too lazy. Or they might stroke my ego by giving a accolation, saying you're smart, or you're good at this and that, or you have a lot of followers on social media. But all these labels are incomplete, and they must be stripped away to understand who we are. Now, Jesus' first follower understand this, and they realize how difficult it was. We don't really appreciate sometimes what the first believer of the New Testament church has to go through. 
They had everything stripped away from them. They were persecuted by the religious authorities. They were chased around by the Romans. They lost their jobs. Their family disowned them. Their neighbors betrayed them. They were kicked out of the synagogue. Their Jewish life, their Jewish culture, their Jewish identity were all taken away from them, all stripped away. And on top of that, the political and the military machinery of Rome was about to crush down on Judea and Samaria. In a devotional from Michael Carr on Matthew 5, Jesus prepared his follower for, for a very new radical identity. It's an it's a identity that I think all followers of Jesus Christ should be prepared. It's really hard. Who are we? It says in Matthew 5, we are the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, the hungry, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemaker, and the persecutor. These are Jesus' identity. So they are ours as well. We are the citizens of his kingdom. So discarding what we are used to, what we are comfortable with, is hard. Taking up this new identity, it is hard. But you might know the song, Harder Worship. Only when all is stripped away that we can simply, simply come. So this is where Jesus continues in Matthew 5, says, 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before man, that they may see the good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Last month, Alex here has shared from Ephesians 4 and 5, speaking as a, living as the children of the light, being light of the living God. We are to grow and mature so we can shine on, like a city on a hill. So the question is not who we are, who I am, but the real answer is who Jesus is. If you go through and study his word, read the Old Testament, Old Testament, understand the gospel, you will know who Jesus is, and then we will know who we are. Our identity is in him. Number three, I just want to say that darkness has not suppressed it. We live in Canada, beautiful British Columbia. We're comfortable here. We're not like places where there's war and famine. But darkness is prevailing everywhere, even here. And it's not that deep beneath the skin of our society. There is brokenness, pain, denial. There's a couple of things about darkness as listed here. Darkness exists everywhere in the world. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. John 9, 4-5. Second, light is not 
always welcome. Now this is judgment. The light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their actions are wicked. John 3.19 Number three, darkness is not passive. Being a light, as we just talked about, is not easy. It's not passive. But the darkness is also not passive. It's not like me jogging around in a trail and then fumbling my way back home. Darkness is very much intentional. It's not neutral. In the parable of the talents in Matthew 23, 30, the worthless servant was being thrown outside into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So spiritual darkness is very persuasive. It covers up the truth. It can be felt. Uh, Canadian songwriter uh, Bruce Cockburn wrote in his popular song, Lovers in a Dangerous Time. It says, but nothing's worth having comes without some kind of a fight. Got to kick in the darkness till it bleeds daylight. I want to spend a moment to share a powerful story about a church that will not be suppressed by darkness. A beautiful story that happened 31 years ago around this time of the year in December. It's about the move of the spirit captured in a book uh, by Chuck Colson called The Body. It's about a church kicking in the darkness. It happened in a town called Timisoara. It's a medieval town that used to be in Transylvania, that used to be part of the kingdom of Hungary. It's a university town which became part of Romania after World War I. After World War II, the Soviet Union seized Romania and imposed a communist regime. And over the decades, the regime and the country came under the control of a dictator called Nikolai Ceausescu. Ceausescu ruled with an iron fist from Bucharest, the capital, and he plundered the country. It was once a fertile breadbasket of Eastern Europe, but the people there were starving because this government had shipped all the food abroad. They were left standing in long food line for meager rations, so the store shelf was empty. At the same time, Chosetsu's and his top official was whining and dining in his palace. And there was a Vanity Fair article that noted that Elena, his wife, had an official birthday party menu. It included three kinds of caviar, filet mignon, roast beef, baby pork, venison, pheasants, game hen, lobster, on and on it go. It was painfully delicious for those who cannot partake. So that's your systemization program. Basically raise the rural villages, the towns, hamlets, and transform them into blocks and blocks of these Soviet-style apartments, these dark gray buildings where people live in small flats with the smell of sewage and garbage. Hot water was allowed only once per week. Electricity was rationed to a limited time during the day, 
and the sadistic district heating system to keep these apartments at 50 degrees, 10 degrees Celsius in the wintertime. People in Romania were literally living in darkness and freezing in darkness. And there's a network of secret police that arrested those who opposed or criticized the regime, and Christians were among them. The state controlled the main denominations and the priests and the bishops collaborated with the states, the prayers, and the songs boost the virtue of the communist state. But there was an ethnic Hungarian reformed church in Timisoara that was pastored by a man named Laszlo Toke. His predecessor collaborated with the government and the church was just doing rituals and rites. Membership fell to 50 people when Toki took over as a probationary pastor. The previous pastor passed away. Toki mourned for his town, his people, because the secularism, the atheism, has drained the life out of the people. So he called on his small congregation, the 50 people, that everyone should be a pastor to one another. He reached out to the elderly, he reached out to the students, he reached out to the Baptists, the Catholics, the Adventists, the Orthodox, the Pentecostals. He revitalized worship with new hymns, songs, Bible studies. He dug out the old baptismal record of people who have left the church over the years and called them back, and people returned. So within two years, the church grew from 50 people to 5,000. Communion was celebrated with a new meaning of the blood and the body of the risen, risen Christ. But of course, all this growth caught the attention of the state secret police, and they harassed him and his congregation. Things got really bad when Tokis gave an interview to two Canadian journalists where he criticized the government systemization program and the human rights issue. The interview tapes were smuggled out of Romania and broadcast throughout Europe. And of course, when it got back to Ceausescu, he wasn't impressed. So the government cut his electric power, took away his food ration book so he can't buy food. He was beaten along with some of his members of his congregation by thugs. But the church looks after his needs. But the court eventually ordered this pastor to be evicted from town by December 15, 1989. So when the police arrived that day to take him away, the church members had formed a vigil around the church. It blocked the entrance. And when other onlookers and passerby who saw what was happening, whether they were Hungarian, Romanian, Catholics, Germans, they, they joined in. So by midnight, a large crowd formed around the church, around the block. Toki eventually asked the people, just go home, but they didn't. And a Baptist student named Daniel Garver was in the crowd that night. And he approached his own pastor in the crowd, and he opened his, his coat. His pastor thought that, oh my, you know, is he... Does he have a weapon in there? Because, you know, their tension was mounting with the crowd, the police around. But when he opened his jacket, it was just 
dozens of small candles, much smaller than that. By 1 a.m., Tokis opened his window to look outside before he goes to bed, and he couldn't believe his eyes. Light from hundreds of flickering candles pierced through the darkness, candle cup in people's hands lighting up their faces, and they were singing hymns. Tokis said that he didn't know what would happen to him the next day, but he knew the Spirit of the Lord was there. The vigil extended over the next two days and spread into the downtown square. Believers in Timisora was praying for revival. They also bought soup and tea to the people in the square. What started out as a vigil for a very popular pastor turned and grew into a solidarity movement. As things stepped up, the people started to call for liberty, freedom, and down with the regime. The secret police made a move on the 17th of December and arrested Laszlo and his wife from the church. At nightfall, people were still lighting up candles, singing, protesting in the downtown square. Daniel Grava was linking arms with a Pentecostal girl and other in the crowd. But eventually, the armed troops came in with the tanks and to the city square, and Chochetsu from Bucharest has ordered the troops to open fire on the crowd. Among the casualty, Daniel had his left leg shot off. The Pentecostal girl beside him, as well as many others, were killed that night. Tens of thousands of people in Timisoara was caught up in this movement, solidarity movement. And news of the protests and the crackdown spread quickly across Romania, which triggered even more protests across the country. It spread to Bucharest, where Trosetsu has again ordered his troops to open fire onto the crowd. But this time, the troops sided with the people and turned against Trosetsu, and before Christmas, his regime was toppled. This event in 1989, along with the Polish solidarity victory, re-election victory, and the fall of the Berlin Wall, was a flashpoint that changed Europe. It dismantled the Iron Curtain, and in, within a year later, the Soviet Union was dissolved. Daniel Grava was recovering in the hospital afterwards and told his pastor, I don't mind so much the loss of my leg. After all, I was the one that lit the first candle. It started with a few candles, and it changed the world. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, say the Lord of hosts in Zechariah 4, 6. So what is the purpose of the light? It shows us directions. Darkness covers the truth the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it covers the way that we cannot find where we're going unless we receive the light. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Shining brightly like those candelabra on top of the temple. And he said, he's the lamp unto our feet and the light to our path. The second purpose of the light is to show us ourselves. 
it shines into each one of us to show where there is any area of darkness within us, places where moss may grow. Let his light shine within us so that we are aware of our own, uh, own darkness. We don't need to define ourselves or let other people define us. Let his light show who we are, his kingdom people, rooted in Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Number three is the shine in darkness. We are the light of the world. As Chuck Hosen wrote, when a church is a church, as a believer of Timosaurus showed us, the people of God, moved by the Spirit of God, do the work of God, and evil cannot stand against it. Darkness cannot suppress it. Yes, being the light is not easy. I have failed many times myself. Missed opportunity to share the gospel or speak a word of light. My light might be flickering. But the good news is that God will not abandon his people. In Isaiah 42, verse 3 and 4, a boost weed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. God will not break the bruised reed. He will not extinguish the flickering flame. And he uses the weak to move the powerful or darkness. And he consistently uses less to do more. So in closing, darkness is everywhere, but it's not sovereign. I share some story from history, very powerful things that happen in our, in our world. But the real battle over darkness is spiritual. It's a battle over sin and death. Jesus faced opposition during his ministry for those who want to snuff out his light. He was crucified and buried in the darkness of death in a cave. But victory is won on the cross. And a beautiful hymn in Christ alone. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. What a beautiful poem showing the beautiful shaft of delicious light bursting through the darkness of death in the cave. So let God work in us. Let him work through us that we may shine for his glory and people will praise the Father in heaven. Thank you. Amen. And I'll ask Pastor Rich to close today. Thank you so much, Eugene. That was a marvelous message, encouraging us, inspiring us from scripture, from history, from personal experience, just the power of light and 
bringing just a, a deeper understanding of Jesus' words when he says, I am the light of the world. In Isaiah 60, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. God desires to pour out his glory on us so that we can be lit up for him. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. And we are experiencing that all across the nations of the earth right now. There is so much heaviness and there's so much darkness. And we are living in the last days. And we are God's testimony. God has no other plan B. The church is his only plan. We are his candles. And we are the ones to shine for him. And it says, the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. And nations will come to your light. When you're in the darkness and you've just been in the, the suffocating heaviness of it, you just yearn for light. You know, my eyes have gotten older as I've gotten older, and there are times when I have to get up and write notes down because God quickens something to me, and I don't turn on the light in our bedroom because I don't want to wake up Mimi, so I have to go outside our room to go to this little study outside our room, and I have to stumble around, but the moment I just turn on the little lamp, just this rush of confidence and this rush of comfort, and you just go towards the light. And as much as the world may try to push back and resist us, there is such a drawing power to that light that God has put in us. In Kings, it says, the nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. In some regards, this verse here is prophesying revival, that all the darkness that's coming on is actually a precursor to revival. It seeds people's soul with a deep, deep desire to come into the light. And so Eugene's teaching today really helped illumine, not to do a play on words, but to really illumine our understanding on the power of light, the comfort of light, the value of light. You know, people have been fascinated by the nature of light. Nobel Prize, Prizes have been awarded to people who have studied light. And so we get to be those who, who study and master spiritual light so that we can really bring impact for him. Jesus, we thank you for this word. We thank you, God, for the revelation that the apostle John had as he lived with Jesus for three years, that he was not just a man. He was not just a servant. He was not just a miracle worker. He was not just a great teacher. He was the light of the world. And that light wasn't just turned on when Jesus came. That light was there from the very beginning. And that's the very nature and the very character of eternal Father and eternal God. And that's what you desire for us during this Christmas season and in every season is for your light to be powerfully shown through us. So we take to heart, God, these words from Scripture. We take to heart these words that were given to us through Eugene. Thank you for lifting heaviness off of us, God, this morning through the power of your word and that we can walk in the joy that comes by being set free. And we bless you now in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, God bless you this week. Continue to be thinking and meditating on just the wonder of Jesus being born. And if you get opportunities to share some of those thoughts with those people around you, please do that because that will be truth that will encourage them and set them free. We'll see you next week.